Well, I'm so excited to rejoin you and the adventure that you have been on together. I'm so grateful for Jordan and Kristen most recently and for opening God's Word. Did they do a Did they do a great job? Oh my goodness, yeah. Thank you, thank you, you guys, for leading us through God's Word. We're going to continue that journey together. And to be honest with you, as we look at the passage that we are approaching today, we realize there's no way uh, that that we're going to be able to embrace it all today. So we're going to spend two weeks focusing on this very special journey that that Jesus invited his disciples. You can read about this particular portion of it in Matthew chapter 16. I invite you to open your phones, to open your Bibles. I think we'll have the, the scripture on the screen for you as well. While you're turning there, though, I just want to just remind you and, and, and just encourage you, whenever you come to a, to a passage in the Bible, it didn't exist all by itself, right? It's placed very strategically for our understanding in a context. And, and the context includes the passages that we have been studying together. It includes two chapters ago in Matthew 14, Jesus walking on the waters, but it includes a conflict in this case today, a conflict between um, the traditions that people uh, understood God to be a part of the people groups that that claim to follow Jesus, the, the non-believers who are watching from the outside and taking their cues and and then especially it includes Jesus. So as we approach Matthew um, 16 especially, we, we've seen that Jesus has been transforming lives. And the word of transform lives is a powerful word. When, when someone's been genuinely changed, other people see that. And it causes two responses. Do you remember that from our studies? It causes either people to get very angry and to feel judged and condemned. And you just have to know that, beloved, that, that if you live the Christ life, it's going to cause some people to respond to you negatively. I just want to encourage you so much, though, because not only will people respond negatively to you, but they will be inexorably drawn to you as well. well how can I say that so boldly? Because truth draws people to it, right? We were created to experience truth. We were created to experience love and grace and love and truth are incredibly winsome. So Jesus has been uh, touching lives physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's upset the religious leaders of his day and they have demanded signs, right? They've demanded that Jesus do something for them. They put him on stage and says, do it again, Jesus. We want to see. And, and, and Jesus has refused, right? Uh, and his disciples are watching this and they're getting very confused. And, and so when Jesus says, he uses just a metaphor that, that many of us would understand. He says, beware of the leaven of um, the Pharisees and the scribes. In other words, he's using uh, uh, an, an example that they don't understand. Uh, they, they think he's talking about bread. And they think, um, wow, uh, did we mess up? Did we do something wrong? And, and, and Jesus says, oh, my children, you know, not talking about bread. 
I'm talking about those kinds of things that seep into your soul and without your ever realizing it, change your perspective, right? Just came back from from California, uh, and and it's a very different culture there, right? Gasoline, by the way, was five sixty a gallon. I went walking every day, but. But also there's, there's a different culture. And, and, and let me just start our study by, by saying we have to beware the leaven of our culture, right? That, that seeps into us and begins to transform us. How, how can Jesus get this across to his disciples? He does something crazy. He takes them on another field trip probably 30 or 40 miles north of where they are. Again, I, I just can't get over that, right? We say that like, oh, I can drive that in half an hour. They didn't have cars, right? Whenever they went on a field trip, it was a multiple day or even week adventure. He took them very intentionally up to the very boundaries of Israel because he, there was something there for them to learn. Oh, God, I know you have something for us today to to learn would you speak through your word now lord your servants are listening would you speak to us of eternal things and i pray that this scripture god would would um, find good soil and would take root and bear much fruit in our lives god i pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're in chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. We're going to just take half of the passage today, so it might be uh, longer on the screen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's the, uh, the farthest northeast corner of uh, the, the land of Israel, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man was, was a reference that Jesus used of himself that the only other reflection of that we saw in our study of Daniel way back when. Jesus is making a statement about himself. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, well, some say, some people say you're John the Baptist, right? And apparently come back from the dead, right? Others say Elijah, the, the greatest prophet that they could think of at that time, Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah. I'm not sure why they would choose Jeremiah. He certainly was a powerful president at the time of the exile, but it's very possible because he was the one that had to bring the bad news. And, and some of the things Jesus said were incredibly good news for people. Some things he said were incredibly bad news. Well, one of the other prophets, the disciples said, I have to imagine, as I just picture that scene, that them kind of chuckling, <laughs> how could they get it so wrong, right? And about that time, I, I realized how many times I've gotten it so wrong about who Jesus is and who he, who he came to be. But, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's using the plural, you, right here. Who do you, all of you disciples, who do you say that I am? 
It doesn't say it right here in verse 16, but, but you have to imagine there was a little pregnant pause right there because this is an important question. Right? And Peter, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, that Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, Simon, you didn't just you just didn't figure that out on your own. My heavenly Father revealed that to you, and I tell you that you, Shimon, the Hebrew way of saying Simon, you are Peter, and he uses a very particular word uh, for for little stone. He uses the word Petros. You are you are a chip off the old block, right? You are a a, a, a rock, Peter. And then he says, on this rock, and he uses now um, a different word. It's a completely different word. It sounds like Petros, Petra, but it's a completely different word uh, in, in the original languages. It means you are the bedrock. You are a cliff, an outcropping. You are, uh, uh, excuse me, excuse me, he's the rock on this outcropping on this bedrock, I'm going to build my church. The reason I'm emphasizing this so much is because this passage has been, has been interpreted a thousand different ways uh, in our culture and, and since the time of Jesus. It's really important to know what it actually said. You are uh, a chip off the old block, but on this bedrock, on this outcrop, on this cliff, I will build my church. One of the two times Jesus uses the word church himself. I will build my ecclesia, the, the called out group of people who will fulfill my purpose. And Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. The very word of God. Oh my goodness, thanks be to God. Hey, this is another one of those passages that we have seen so many times and, and each time God has given us some precious little gift and, and it's so, it's so um, tempting, isn't it, to take that little gift of understanding that He gave us and, and kind of just nurture that and to begin to believe that that's all there is in this passage, right? But the beauty of God's Word is that it always has more for us. And so I pray that no matter what treasures you currently have, have gathered from this passage that your heart would be open to the treasures that He would give you today, right now. Well, having just come off of a two-week journey back to, in a very real sense, back to my um, very familiar um, town. When Dad retired from the Air Force in 1969, we moved to Ventura. It was a sovereign thing. There's five places he could have gone. God led him to Ventura and and I went to um, middle school and high school there in Ventura. 
Have you ever gone back to um, a place where you haven't been for a long time and, and, and it just smelled differently, right? And, 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 and the smells prompted your memories, right? Uh, every evening, uh, Karen and I would go down about 5 o'clock. We would go down to the beach and we would walk along the beach. And there's this smell in, in Ventura of salt and of fish, honestly, and, and it, this is distinctive smell and all oh, these memories would come rushing back to me. I think Jesus intentionally moved his disciples to different places because not only were they hearing things there, but, he, but they were also experiencing them. It was a critical journey that his disciples had to go on, right? And I want to suggest to you that there's one critical journey every disciple of Jesus must take, and it's this one. We've been building for this for weeks. It's this journey right here. It's a, it's a journey that helps you determine what you understand about Jesus. It's a journey to Caesarea Philippi. Let me just remind you, so many of you have studied this. So many of you have been blessed by people like Ray Vanderlyn who, who um, have taught so powerfully about this uh, passage, the Bama study. Uh, looks deeply at this passage as well. Um, uh, for those of you who might not be quite as familiar, Caesarea Philippi is at the very northwest corner of, of Israel. It's right on the, uh, the, the boundary of the nation of Israel and Syria. And, and all around it, on, on, on my right over here, let me do it this way as you're going to see it, on my right over here are the, are the Bashan Heights and and, and they, uh, there's up hills rising up on the right. Over here, slightly to our left, is this gorgeous snow-covered Mount Hermon. And, and, uh, and at the foot of Mount Hermon are, are five different um, uh, springs that become the headwaters of the Jordan River. Now go back in time with me. Water is life, right? Uh, if you're in an arid uh, environment, water is life. And so from the very beginning, uh, people would venerate sources of water, right? And, and, and it would become fresh running water. would become almost an idol for people. And there was this place with Mount Hermon here, the Bashan Heights over here. There was this massive Petra, this massive outcrop of stone right here. And down here in the lower left corner, there was this cave. And, and at the time of Jesus, from that cave sprung up all this water. I was looking at pictures of this just a couple of days ago. It's amazing the amount of water that is coming uh, out from this cave. Well, people had goofed around with that cave. They tried in Jesus' time to find the bottom of it. The way they did that was by sounding. They would, every 10 feet or something of a rope, they would tie something so they could count off like they did when they were testing how deep the lake was. And they went and they went and they went and they could not find the bottom of this, of this thing. And so it became very easy for them to begin to think that, that this was the very portal to the underworld. This was, here comes, the gate of hell, right? And, and so all of these cultures began to, to, um, to venerate this site, right? They began to, to build um, 
uh, uh, idol worshiping uh, temples. They began to build temples and and carve niches in this thing. So all across this wall now, all in front of us for for uh, 50 or 60 yards are all these niches carved out of the stone where people put their idols. They put the 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 deepest the symbols of the deepest desires of their heart there, and they worshipped there, right? Even to this day, right? Uh, even to this day, there's uh, on top of this hill, there is a Druze chapel and, uh, and uh, a cult worship center still on this place, right? Why did Jesus bring them to this place, right? Why did he take his disciples on this long journey to this place? Because, because there is a, a journey that each of us must take, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a place of confrontation for our idols, right? It's a place where we come face to face with all the things that we're worshiping, right? Again, if you looked in my window last night, and you'd have seen this strange glow. You'd have seen this, this face looking t- attentively at this glow in the corner, right, for an extended period of time, and you thought, man, that guy's worshiping something, right? Periodically, I would have jumped up with shouts of joy, right? And, and, and periodically, I would, have, I would have fallen to my knees in lament, right? Um, in my case, over basketball, right? But, but, but easy to understand how idols slip into our lives. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because... One year I gave up TV for Lent, and that was the one year that UCLA went all the way to the Final Four, right? To, to, um, yeah. Um, and to my shame, I did not give up TV for Lent this, this week, this, um, this Lent. Jesus brings us to that place where we confront the idols of our culture. Caesarea Philippi was a center of false worship. From the earliest days, the Canaanites worshipped Baal, the, the god of the storm, who, who brought rain and then, then kind of uh, morphed into a fertility god, right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, some of you have been there. Not very far from this very site is where um, Jeroboam built the false temple. He, he didn't want people going down and worshiping Yahweh in Jerusalem, so he built a false temple there. And you can stand right there on the place where they, where they sacrificed to, to a false god, the people of Israel. So right here is, is the location of Israel's rebellion, right? Right here in this place, there was a temple to the Greek god Pan. I'm not even going to say anything about this because it is so horrific. It is so horrific. The things that they did claiming to worship Pan and, 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 and they did it right here where Jesus has brought his disciples. Even, even the Romans got in on the act. Even the Romans built a temple. It's Caesarea, right? You hear the word Caesar in that? Caesarea, they built a temple to Caesar right there, right? So, so there's all these idols of their culture represented right before them. And it's here that, that Jesus says, who do the people say that I am, right? Am I just another one of these, right? Or is this something different? So he brought his 
his disciples to a place of confrontation with, with their idols. But he also brought them to a place of, of, of challenge to their comfort. And this is important for us because we have to confront the idols that have subtly crept into our lives, whether they be health or whether they be education, whether they be financial security or, or even, even um, relationships, children and family, right? And not only did they confront their idols, they also were challenged to confront their comfort. You see, Caesarea Philippi was the boundary of the Jewish world, and it was the interface between the people of God and the world. This is going to be really important for us as we try and exegete this passage, right? He brought them to the very boundaries of everything that they were comfortable with. And, and Jesus today brings us to the boundaries of our comfort. If we miss this, we will miss the call of God. He did not call us to be comfortable, right? He called us to bring the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. So, in a sense, there's two questions that every disciple, every follower of Jesus must ask themselves, right? Who do the people say that I am? Now, you say, wait a second, why do we, can't we just bypass that question and go right to the next one? No, no, because as I saw again, uh, there's a certain culture in southern Indiana, right? And you swim in that culture, and you don't realize sometimes that the culture that you swim in is, is not necessarily the, the, the culture of Jesus. So, so apparent. I just want to stop for a second and, and say... We are blessed, beloved, to, um, to live. Don't let anybody ever put you down for living in southern Indiana. I was astounded at the differences, the work ethic differences. I was astounded at the intellectual thought process difference just between two parts of our own country, right? Uh, um, but, but, and I'm sitting there looking at, at, at the people of California, including people I love, my family members, and I'm saying... You don't realize that what you are reflecting is just the culture around you, right? And not necessarily um, the Word of God or the biblical truth. You don't recognize uh, how uh, you're being influenced by the people around you. So it's a great question. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Because the people around you will affect your perceptions. How many of you, when you were raising children, said, you know, bad people corrupt good morals, right? Um, the people around you affect you. And, and they affect your perception. And you, and you must recognize the water that you swim in. Even if you don't realize it, you have to understand the people around you. Well, who was Jesus talking about in his day? He was talking about the Sadducees. Let me just stop for a second and uh, spell it for you. Yeah. The, um, uh, and say... It's astounding when we look at the people of Jesus' culture, we can see them in our own culture, right? See if I can unpack that for you a little bit. The Sadducees were a political party of Jesus' day, and, and what the people, they believe that what the people of God need most is political power, right? So they sacrificed anything to get political power, and their solution was to immerse themselves in the, in the culture, right? We're going to immerse ourselves in the culture around us. 
And as a result of that, they didn't believe in life after death because the culture around them didn't believe in life after death. And if you don't believe in life after death, if you're not going to live for eternity, then it's really important that you live for today, right? To, by any measure, accomplish what you can today. The Sadducees were people who immersed themselves in the culture. Now, in contrast to them, there were the Pharisees, right? And, and the Pharisees saw the Sadducees and said, no, that's not the solution. What the people of God really need today is purity, right? What they need is purity. And the solution for purity is to separate ourselves, I'm going to say, within the culture, right? Continue to live in the culture, but to be separate or holy within the culture, now, the Pharisees did believe in life after death. There is life after death, but don't mess it up. Can you see that reflection? Can you hear that echo in our culture even today? Oh, don't mess this up because you mess it up, it's all over. Um, you have to live a pure life, and if you can't do that, then I'm sorry. Um, you're going down in judgment. Now, there's yet another people that believed in purity, the Essenes. That's an awkward word. You've not encountered that before, but um, I think I think just think um, think monastic movement, think um, monks and nuns. Think about people that withdraw themselves right from society. The Essenes were believe, people who believed that um, what we need is the coming of the Messiah, and the only way to protect yourself for the coming of the Messiah is to withdraw from the culture and wait. If you've ever heard. The word Qumran, that was an Essene community not far from Jerusalem that protected for us, by the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, gave incredible evidence that the Word of God is unchanging. The Essenes uh, were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Their choice was to withdraw from the culture and wait. Fourth group of people uh, represented in Jesus' day, but also in ours, are the Zealots. They believe what people of God need is revolution. Heard any of that lately? What people of God need is revolution. The solution is to overturn the culture. Let's burn this thing down, right? Let's overturn it and start over again. We need revolution. Why, again, is it so important to understand the people around you? Because you're being influenced by the people around you. And you're swimming in in that water. Then Every disciple must also answer the question, then, who do you say that I am? In that amazing moment of God-inspired clarity, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Son. Now, right there in front of them, right, is all these idols, all these statues. I don't even want to describe to you what some of those statues were. Um, all these uh, images made of stone, right? And people worship them. So how in the world could they do that? Oh, my goodness, we do the same thing, right? And, and Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, right? Who's not represented by some horrific image carved in stone, um, who's alive, creator of the universe, who is alive today. Wow. Wow. 
Well, I'm going to press pause here. We're going to pick up this story again in the coming week. But I want to just note a couple of gifts of God in even where we've been right here. Jesus responds to this amazing statement the first time the disciples. Now, demons have been saying it for months, right? Even non-believers have been saying, declaring who Jesus is, but the disciples haven't declared it, right? The disciples are, are too too afraid to even declare what they're hoping and what they wanting to be true. Um, finally, Simon Peter verbalizes what they all hoped at the, at the deepest level. And Jesus responds to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Again, I want to just remind you, you can be taught by God, right? I'm so grateful that you come and join us for worship. And there's a beauty in the spoken word. But you can go directly to the, to the source. You can go to the word of God yourself. And you can be taught by God. And Simon Peter was taught by God. No one told him to say this. But God, his father, revealed it to him. And as a result, Jesus says to him, And I tell you that you are Peter. You are a chunk of that rock, and on that outcrop, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, which are standing before right then, the gates of hell will not overcome it. There's been so much confusion. And let me just, let me just try and short circuit some of it. Was he talking about Peter? Was Peter, as the Catholic, our Catholic brothers and sisters would believe, was he really the, the Pope now? The one who held the keys, right? Um, uh, yes and no. He was, as a follower of Jesus, given that amazing privilege. That whatever he uh, loosed would be loosed in heaven. Whatever, whatever he bound would be bound in heaven. Peter, by the way, was the first person to recognize who Jesus was among the Jews. He was the first person to take the gospel to the Samaritans. He was the first person to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Three different passages in Acts. He indeed was, yes. But my point is to say every single one of us has been given that privilege as well. Right? So, so, yes, there's a very personal aspect of this. You have been entrusted with the keys to the kingdom of, of heaven. I shared with you before, my earliest experience as a freshman, wild-eyed freshman at UCLA campus, and, and, and a, a person came up to challenge me about my faith. Uh, I was sitting at a Christian book table, and, and they said, the problem with you Christians is that you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and you, you stand by there, and you don't open the door, right? And I remember being, being thunderstruck that I would have so great a treasure and not, not employ it for the kingdom of God. Peter was given, based on his confession, was given power to open doors for people or to shut them. What's the testimony of your life, right? Are you a person who opened doors for the gospel? Or even calling yourself a follower of Jesus, are you a, a person who shuts them, right? Wow. Um, other people, Protestants in particular, have understood that it was his confession 
of the um, of the gospel, right, of who Jesus is, the gospel, that was the rock, right? That and and to that I would say, yes, absolutely, both and, not either or. Um, what does your life testify about Jesus? To the extent that that it testifies that He is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, then it becomes a foundation for people to stand on. To the extent that that it denies that, then it becomes a stumbling block, right? But let me take you one more place, and that is that is this idea that Jesus very particularly took them to this location. He took them to the interface of the world and the people of God. And, and he challenged their idols there, right? He challenged their comfort. Why? Because, because Jesus is still doing that. He's calling us to the interface uh, of, of the faith and the world and inviting you to go there and to proclaim there the truth about who Jesus is. Uh, I've had the privilege of being there three times now, and there's, there's a particular place where you're looking at this whole wall, and it's actually a giant rock. I'm not trying to say that that was the idea, but, but there is this giant rock right there. And, and, and I just like to imagine Jesus standing on that giant rock and saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my church on the interface of all this horrific idolatry and false worship, and and my church is going to flourish there. So, be aware of the water that you swim in, but but never lose the distinctiveness of the gospel in the midst of it. I love the chosen. If you've ever watched the introduction to it, it shows a bunch of fish swimming in the same direction, right? And then one by one, the fish start switching directions. And they start swimming against the current. They start swimming against the water. God is inviting you to the interface of faith and the world and inviting you to swim against the culture. What gifts does he give us for this journey? Come on up, worship team. They're laughing because they all stand up when it's time for me to finish preaching. To get to faith in Jesus Christ, right? Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, right? God is offering you the gift of faith. How do you, how do you know? How do you know that you have faith in God, well, he helps us understand in that passage that was our memory verse, Romans 8 and 9, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you say that out loud, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, the validation of everything that he said and did, you will be saved. Right? You can know this. You can know this. Oh, I wish I could tell you some of the beautiful stories of, of saints who have genuinely wrestled with this truth. It's still happening. It's still continuing today, right? Um, this is the Word of God. If you say out loud, because if you say out something out loud, then you know whether you believe it or not. You can deceive other people, but you cannot deceive your own soul, right? Um, 
if you say Jesus is Lord with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Right? This is important because a lot of people in the first century would have said that they believed in Jesus. They just believed a lot of different things about Him. Right? Oh, he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He's Elijah, right? Reincarnated, right? He's, he's Jeremiah, come back again. And, and there's a lot of people in your world in the 21st century who would say they believe in Jesus. In fact, maybe 85% of the people in Evansville would say they believe in Jesus, right? But what do they believe about Jesus? That he's a historical figure, right? How many of them? would say that they believe even that He rose from the dead. But does that save them, right? I ask you the question today, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That He is the Son of the living dead? I know I'm speaking to the choir. I know what most of you will say as a result. But the question of who exactly is the Jesus you believe in is the crux of the question, right? Not what you believe about Jesus, but who do you say that he is? Follow this for a second. If you think that Jesus had good ideas, then you'll listen to what he says every once in a while. If you think that he was a good teacher, then you'll follow him like you would a good teacher. If you think that Jesus was just a good example, then you'll follow his example, right? But if you think, if you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to the earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, to reign and rule over all as Lord, then that changes everything about the way that you live. I want to invite you. I want to invite you today to think deeply about who you say that Jesus is. And and maybe, just maybe, uh, God would allow you to see the water that you're swimming in. He would allow you to have your heart broken by the people who are drowning in a culture that does not know who Jesus is. Is maybe, just maybe, God will allow you to fall not at the feet of all these idols, but the feet of the Son of the living God. Maybe God would allow you to say with us today, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that you're worthy.